Tim was very gracious to me. He said, please, you know, come and preach while I'm on holidays and preach on whatever you're preaching on at your church. And I said, well, it would, would kind of have to be that way because we have two services, we have two campuses, and so I, I, uh, we have a 9.30 service at our main campus and then an 11 o'clock service. And then by the time that's over and we've fellowshipped, it's, it's 1 o'clock and it takes an hour and 10 minutes to get here. So I, I said I wouldn't have time to prepare anything in, in the 20-minute window that I could have there at Tim Horton. So uh, he said, well, that's okay. Uh, but we're, you're going to actually get the last two messages in a 12-week series. Uh, and, but luckily, you don't need a lot of preamble to make this happen. Let me just give, give you a little snippet of where we've been. Uh, we, in 2012, we did a walk through the Bible using the uh, RMM, the Robert Murray Machine Reading Plan. Is there anyone here who uses that as their devotional guide? Okay, a couple, couple people. It's, uh, it's, there's, there's a handful of different reading plans for reading through the Bible, and uh, we chose the RMM plan because uh, it has you reading in four different places every day. And the advantage of that is you don't get, you're not in Leviticus for six weeks, right? Uh, which, which is a great book, obviously, but for new believers can be a bit of a, of a trap. And uh, so there's that advantage, and it also helps you see the continuity of the scriptures because the way the readings are designed is to accentuate the, the continuity of the Bible. So we did that for a year, and of course, what happens when you get people reading through the Bible who maybe have grown up in the evangelical church? And, uh, you know, I don't know what, what this church is like, Sovereign Grace. I, I suspect it's much better than, than what goes on in the average evangelical church. But in the average evangelical church, you, you can have a thousand messages in a row on the same 17 verses of the Bible because we, we have a selective canon. These, these are the verses that make people feel warm and happy, and they're true. So let's, let's preach on those. Why haul out all the difficult, nasty verses which only serve to divide and agitate? And, and so we, we have this, this very narrowed canon. And, and so, you know, most, most people, um, they're very, very, very familiar with 17 or 18 topics that are addressed in Scripture. Then you get them to read through the Bible from cover to cover, and they have all these aha moments. Um, I, had a, I had a lady send me an email a couple weeks ago, and she said, you know, I hear you preach all the time on the sovereignty of God and blah, 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 blah. And she says, in my mind, I have an autocorrect, you know, feature. Whenever you say sovereignty of God, I immediately have some sort of autocorrect function, which includes all these footnotes, which tells me everything I don't think that really means. She said, now I've read through the Bible from cover to cover, and I really believe that. I, it's because it's there in the Bible. So you have all these kind of aha moments, and, and, and you also have a whole bunch of how's that work moments where you see a passage which clearly teaches the sovereignty of God, and then you see another passage which teaches how human beings make real decisions for which they're morally accountable. And you think, how does that go with that? And then you read another passage which seems to talk about the justice of God. He's raining fire and brimstone down on cities. And then another passage which talks about his unfathomable mercy. And you think, okay, how does that work together? Then there's passages that talk about the unity of God and passages that talk about the diversity within God, the differentiation within God. And and so we started with the seeming or real tensions that exist within the identity of God, sovereignty and yet moral responsibility, 
justice and, and mercy equally true? Uh, we, diversity and yet unity, one God and three persons. How does that work? So we started with the tensions or the seeming tensions within God. And then we moved to the tensions within the issue of our salvation. It, we would agree the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith and this not of ourselves lest anyone should boast. So salvation is by grace through faith. And yet there are passages in the book of James which would indicate that if, if that doesn't result in works, then it's not real. So how does faith and works, how do they hold together? Then there are passages in the Bible which talk about the reality of apostasy, that some people track for a little while, they're very enthusiastic, but then the sun comes out, there's difficulties and troubles, and they fall away. But then there's other passages of the Bible that says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. How do those fit together? How how does apostasy and perseverance fit together? We looked at the issue of uh, the now and not yet tensions in the Bible. There are all kinds of things that are promised to us immediately at our conversion. If you are in Christ, right? Behold, I remember one of the verses I learned downstairs in this building when I was a child. It was in the King James Version because it was in the 70s. And uh, it was, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are now. Now. And yet, there's all this stuff that's future. And it's not ours now. And if we start claiming it now, we make a mess. We make heresies like the prosperity gospel. Right? So what's the tension between the now and not yet in our salvation? And then lastly, we have begun to look at how the tensions that we've observed in God play out in the realm of relationships between people. Because, of course... You can't have a conversation about ethics, how we treat each other, how we live, how we do life and ministry, unless you've grounded that in theology proper, right? What's true about God? So before we start talking about how word and deed fit together in ministry, we have to have had the conversation about how justice and mercy fit together in the character of God, right? Because you move from theology to ethics, never backwards. And so this morning, actually, in, in our church, we were talking about how our understanding of maleness and femaleness is derivative and related to our understanding of God as one and three, one and diverse, a unity and a diversity. Now, you don't need to have tracked uh, with all of that to enter into where we're going to be in our time this afternoon. You need to believe that God's word is true, that it is for our good and for his glory. And, and you need to believe that how we treat each other needs to be grounded in who God is. And if you believe that, you'll be fine. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. I want to talk to you, obviously, about maleness and femaleness and how we are equal but different. Not as a result of the fall but as a result of God's good design. All right, let me read to you Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, let's talk briefly about what it means that God made humanity in his image after his likeness. You have to remember, of course, whenever you're exegeting a text, the first job is to ask yourself the question, how would this have sounded in the ears of those to whom it was first said? Because, of course, you know, we're coming at this text with 3,500 years of, of baggage and tradition, right? It, we've, we've been using these terms in a certain way. We've got a developed theology. We've got a, a developed ecclesiology, which is meaning, you know, how we do church in light of what we understand about God. We have all of that. And it's appropriate to pay attention to that, but you begin by asking, what did these words mean when people heard them for the first time 3,500 years ago? Well, to a Hebrew slave, 3,500 years ago, wandering around the desert of Mount Sinai, these words would have had some serious resonance. First of these words, the word for image in Hebrew is tselem. It means both resemblance and representative. The Hebrew word for likeness used here is demuth. It means shape, likeness, manner, or similitude. All right, so you understand, the people who first heard these words heard them, heard them in a particular context. They were recently liberated slaves. Now, if you know your Bible, and if you've been watching History Channel on Sunday nights, well, if you've been watching History Channel on Sunday nights, you're actually a little bit confused about the Bible. But uh, And sword fights in Sodom and Gomorrah. My son watched that with me. I got a 10-year-old son. He watched the Bible thing on TV last Sunday night. And uh, we got to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where the, instead of like the city being destroyed by fire and all that, it was like a giant angelic sword fight. And he looked at me and he said, that didn't happen in the Bible, but it should have because that's way cool. <laughs> I was like... Oh, Lord, help us all. Whew. But anyway, uh, if you've been uh, watching that show or uh, reading your Bible, then you know that these Hebrew slaves were set free from a particular place. What place was that? Egypt, right? Well, in Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was referred to as the image and likeness of God. In fact, the king that most of us are most familiar with, King Tutankhamun, King Tut as we call him, his name, Tutankhamun, literally means the living image of the god Amun. So let that settle on you for just a second. Moses has just told a bunch of recently liberated Hebrew slaves that they are all kings and queens. That every son of God is a king, and every daughter of God a queen. He or she is in the image and likeness of Yahweh, the only living God. Now, that's pretty good news if you're a recently liberated Hebrew slave, and I would suggest it's still pretty good news today. Men and women are exalted creatures. They are ruling creatures. They are royal creatures. They are like God. And they represent God as lords over creation. They represent God, and in doing so, in some way, they resemble God. The emphasis in Genesis chapter, 20, or chapter 1 is on equality, and, and uh, there is a sense in which as we are equal, 
we are equal in the sense that we resemble God in the bearing of his image. It's very significant that the text says that God made humanity male and female. Humanity in its design is a unity and a diversity, just as is God. God is three distinct persons and yet one God. Unity and diversity. As with God, so with humanity in his image and likeness. In Genesis 1, we have a real strong highlighting of the fact that the man and the woman are equal in value and worth. They have exalted dignity because they are together resembling God as image bearers. All right, flip forward in your Bibles now to Galatians 3, 27 to 28. Now, I've intentionally uh, moved from a creation passage to a New Testament passage post-cross, post-redemptive work of Christ. And there's a reason for that. Uh, If you you know your gospel, one of the things Tim said to me, because I asked him, I said, give me some orientation. I said, it's always weird when you're preaching to a group of people you don't know. I don't know what to take for granted with you, and I I don't know uh, what, what your buttons are, what your key values are. So I said, give me, give me a little bit of orientation. What's unique about preaching at Sovereign Grace Church in King City? And one of the things he said is, we, we, we make an intentional effort to be gospel-rooted or gospel-grounded with all of our preaching. And uh, I asked him what he meant by that because I assumed he was just espousing what's called the Christological hermeneutic, which is no matter what text you're reading in the Bible, after you've explained what it meant in its original context, you relate it to Christ because Christ is the, is the root and center of God's self-disclosure. And he said, yes, uh, yes, that's what we would say, but, but he added a little, a little bit of layering to that so that I would understand. Well, in, in fact, this is an extremely gospel-centric passage that we're dealing with, or concept, or issue that we're dealing with. Because what we see is that, of course, you know the gospel. If you have a, a, a well-rounded understanding of the gospel, you understand the gospel is not just that tiny little bit that tips you into the kingdom, Right? Sometimes in evangelicalism, I always ask people when they say they're gospel-centric, I always say, what do you mean by that? Because some people mean really good things by that, and some people mean really squirrely and silly things by that. I'll be honest with you. Uh, If what you mean is, you know, we only talk about that little bit that tips us into the kingdom. You know how Jesus died for our sins, and if you pray this prayer, then that tips you into the kingdom, and and this is what happens, and and we keep the focus on that because that's the real big issue. Well, I said, that's not a robust enough understanding of the gospel. You know, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he lays out the gospel, and it's, it's the gospel in five Gs, in essence. And I would guess that given you that your name is Sovereign Grace Church, you know that the gospel actually begins with the sovereignty of God. God is large and in charge, and he has the right to dictate the terms of life. That's where the gospel begins. If your gospel doesn't begin there, then you have no frame of reference to explain sin to people. What is sin? If God is not sovereign, and if God does not have the right to dictate the terms of human life, what is sin exactly? But if God is sovereign, if God is large and in charge, and if he does have the right to dictate the terms of human life, then sin is simply the failure to trust in the essential goodness of God's sovereignty over his creation. And that was original sin. That was original, original sin. Adam and Eve, what was the sin? Failure to believe that God's word can be trusted? Failure to believe that God is good? Did God say? Did God say? Isn't God hiding something from you? Can you really trust that living under God's sovereignty will result in your flourishing? That is 
not just original sin, that is all sin, is it not? Questioning the authority of God's word, questioning the essential goodness of God's design. If you don't understand that the gospel begins with the sovereignty of God, you have no frame of reference for understanding sin, and you therefore are not in a very good position to appreciate grace. Because the presenting problem in the Bible is the fact that we have failed to to trust and rest in the sovereignty of God and his essential goodness. That's the presenting problem. Grace is the solution to that presenting problem. And if we don't properly appreciate God's sovereignty, if we don't really understand human guilt, we're not in a good position to receive grace or to live with gratitude unto God's glory. That's the full gospel in five Gs, right? And so actually, if we're going to have a gospel-focused understanding of this issue, we have to understand what was ours in creation under God's gracious sovereignty, under God's good provision. What was lost due to human rebellion and sin? And how is all of that and more restored to us in Jesus Christ? Because that's the movement in the Bible on this issue. And that's the movement that the Apostle Paul presents us with here in Galatians 3. What was lost and obscured and rebellion and cursed is restored to us now through salvation in Jesus Christ. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you've probably heard other preachers say that the little Greek word underneath put on means to clothe yourself to play a role. It's a word borrowed from theater. Right? Paul is literally saying that if you are in Christ, if you are saved, you are now restored to the place where you can resemble and represent God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you are doing that, he goes on to say, there's, you're going to find there's no longer slave nor free, no longer male nor female, no longer Jew nor Greek, because you're all one in Christ. You're going to discover that as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to resemble and represent God in Christ, all the old barriers to human peace and fellowship are of no further significance to you. You're going to be a place again where you have peace. And that sounds an awful lot like the state of man and woman in the garden. Genesis 2, 24 to 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast or cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. Unity, belonging, and peace. This was ours in creation. It was lost in rebellion. It's restored to us in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, this is where the Christian conversation on gender has to begin. But if we would be faithful to the whole counsel of God, it's obviously not where it should end. Open your Bibles again to the book of Genesis, this time to chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Now, if you know your Bible and if you've had a little bit of uh, you know, Bible background, you know that Genesis 2 is generally understood as a second giving of the creation narrative, right? Sometimes it's explained, and I think helpfully, that chapter 1 is like the big picture view. It's like Google Earth kind of deal, right? You get the big picture view. And then chapter 2 is like street level. It narrows in, it focuses in tight on the crowning achievement of creation, which is the man and the woman. So parallel stories told at different levels of magnification, if you will. All right, Genesis 2, verses 18 and following. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, up until this point, everything has been good. Everything has been good. And this is pre-fall. So this is a deficiency that serves God's glory. It's not good that the man should be alone. 
I'll make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. Well, in this story, the emphasis is clearly now on differentiation. The rib is taken out of the man to make something other and alongside. As sometimes said, and and maybe it's helpful, I don't know. I said in in this morning that it rhymes, and then somebody told me it didn't. But anyway, you've probably heard it said, uh, you know, that, that God didn't make Eve from Adam's toe, lest he grind her into the earth. He didn't make her from his head, lest he grovel before her. He made her from his rib, that he might walk beside her in companionship and love. And as I say that out loud, I realize it doesn't rhyme, but it's still true, right? It has has the sound of truth. The critical issue for us anyway from this text is first and foremost that differentiation between the sexes was God's idea. Now, let that settle on you. Um, As I mentioned already, we have two campuses, and and they're different. The the Hub campus, our main campus, the First Baptist Church uh, Aurelia campus, is um, multi-generational by design. We work very hard to be multi-generational. I actually told Tim, I said, you got to understand, I might show up dressed totally different on two different weeks because I I alternate uh, between dress casual to appeal to people 40 and under, and, uh, and more formal where I wear like a, a jacket and tie. I said, I, and I do that intentionally so that nobody gets to feel that they own the pastor and that, you know, that this is an old person's church or a young person's church. Our church thinks that's hilarious. And so actually recently they gave me a pair of pants that was dress jeans on one side and dress pants on the other side. I think it's hilarious. But anyway, we're, we're multi-generational by design. And, um, uh, so what, what that means is when I, and, and then our second campus is uh, very young. It, it, it uh, would be this, this young or, or younger, because uh, that's, that's the way it is with church plants, by and large. But in the, in the main campus, it was a funny experience preaching this, because there are some truths which sound totally revolutionary to a certain demographic, which sound boring and not even worth writing down to other generations. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and, and to, to say that, Gender differentiation is part of God's design, that it was God's idea. That doesn't sound interesting enough to write down if you're over 60. You're waiting for something interesting. If you're under 40, that sounds rude and revolutionary, doesn't it? Because we live in a world now where we don't talk about gender that way. We talk about gender as a personal choice. We've just come through... Uh, a court case in, uh, in the States, in Massachusetts, and maybe you saw this on CNN, where uh, uh, parents were sending their little kid, who was born a boy, they were sending him to school with pink hair, dressed in frilly you know, ballerina dresses, and they wanted the school to treat this boy as a girl. And they sued the school because they would not let the boy use the girl's washroom. 
And so anyway, it, it, the court case has now been finalized. And now in Massachusetts anyway, gender is a decision of the students. Uh, you can be Johnny at home, but then go to school and be Janie and, and uh, use the girls' change room and the girls' washroom. And the school is not allowed to question that. And neither are the students allowed to question that or they'll be subject to discrimination charges. Now, now I'm sure that there aren't any grade 8 boys out there prepared to make mischief out of that. Yeah, in my own church, you'd know I'm being very sarcastic right now. That strikes me as ludicrous, right? But, but that is the world that we live in. Gender is a personal choice. The differentiation between the sexes is nothing other than plumbing and, and, and sexual preference. Best left to the choice of the individual. That's the world that we live in. And, and so this is actually a little bit confrontational, a little bit offensive. Differentiation between the sexes was God's idea. God wanted humanity to be male and female. Differentiation is not the result of the fall. It precedes the fall. It is essential to God's good design. Now, secondly, we need to notice that God made the man first. Adam is the first man. He's the federal head of the race of humankind, and he's given certain responsibilities associated with that. Now, this is very important to notice. You can't make sense of 1 Timothy 2 unless you understand this. You can't make sense of Romans 5 and the relationship of Jesus and Adam if you don't understand this. Here in Genesis chapter 2, the commands of God are delivered to Adam way back in Genesis 2.16 before Eve exists. That's hugely significant. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, Ha-Adam. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam, created first, is given the stewardship of God's word. He is responsible for knowing it, for teaching it, and for enforcing it as the rule of creation. Now, we also need to notice that after the awareness of this responsibility settles on Adam, God introduces the issue of partnership and help. Adam is made to feel his aloneness. He's made aware that aloneness is not good. Now, once again, this is a great example of truths that sound so inane as to not be worth writing down to a certain generation and sounding so offensive that they ought not to be written down to another generation. We're being introduced here to a concept that is completely foreign to our culture. Aloneness is not good. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what the hottest real estate is in New York City? 600 square foot apartments. Do you know why? Because 4 million people in New York City live by themselves for their entire lives. It's a hookup culture, right? You have your own space, then you go out and you hook up, you get what you need from other people, and you get to come back to your own space where you are sovereign over your own domain, right? last thing you want to do is get married because then you go, whew, right, all the time. And, uh, and men are leaving stuff in weird places. And, and so get yourself a 600-square-foot apartment and, and, and just take from other people in the hookup culture. That's the world that we live in. Four million people in New York City live by themselves. But here the Bible says, aloneness is not good. 
It's not God's design. Again, whether you find that offensive or not probably depends this afternoon on how old you are. Right? Because culture has been changing while we slept. So God makes Adam aware of his need and, and parades in front of him all these unfit and probably highly unattractive potential mates. And, and, and Adam begins to realize that it's the general pattern of God to pair creatures by gender and to wonder why he alone, of all that God has created, must be without a mate. God often creates the awareness of a need before he meets the need. Boy, that's a gospel theme too, isn't it? You understand, what, what's the primary motivation for worship and for holiness? If you've got good Reformed theology, you know the answer to this. It's not the attempt to earn God's favor. It is response. It's gratitude. It's gratitude. See, God will often create seasons in our lives where we don't have what we need. Do you understand that that's not proof of God's absence? That's proof of God's grace. It's a gift of God, seasons of need and want. Because it prepares you to receive grace, puts you in the posture of a supplicant, which is the posture you need to have to receive grace. And then when you receive grace and you knew that you needed it, how do you live? Gratefully. You live gratefully, right? So do you understand that maybe if you're sitting in here as a single person and you're saying, you know, I, I want a mate, but I don't have one. Receive that as God's grace. It will position you well to receive his gift in due time. And that will help you to live as a grateful husband or as a grateful wife. Long and short of it is God creates the need in Adam's life. Then he puts Adam to sleep. Sometimes you've got to put a man to sleep to get anything done. Puts a man to sleep. He takes a rib and he fashions the woman. In our mind's eye, we can imagine God telling Eve to stand off to the side behind the tree over there while he wakens Adam. God tells Adam he's got one more creature for him to inspect and name. And that he's to wait here while God brings this wonderful creature to him. Then God appears with Eve on his arm. And the first words of man recorded in the Bible erupt as a love poem. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is the first marriage in the Bible. It is between one man and one woman. And it is officiated over by the God of the universe. And that fact lies behind most of what the New Testament has to say about human sexuality. Now, before we leave this text, we need to tie up a few things. First of all, we, we probably need to say a thing or two about the English phrase in our Bibles, a helper fit for him. In, in the 21st century, we have a thousand reasons for hating this text. In the 20th century, the last century, there was really one main reason that people reacted negatively to this text, and it was the word a helper fit for him. I can't remember how the King James put it, but I remember it was awkward and, and, and confrontational. A helper meet for his needs or something, and, and it just sounded creepy. And, and, uh, and so people reacted negatively to that. Nobody wants to be described as somebody's helper or meet, whatever that means, right? And, and actually, the, the Hebrew word is ezer, and you've probably heard other preachers say before, the, the, the Hebrew word ezer is not pejorative in any sense. In fact, it's used many times in the Bible, several times in the Psalms. 
of, to refer to God's relationship to us, that God is our helper. It's the same word, azir. It does not imply in and of itself uh, and any sort of pejorative. And in this context, all it seems to be communicating is that Eve is the helper that corresponds to Adam's deficiency. Now, do you understand that before the fall, we still had deficiencies? God actually creates us with strategic deficiencies to draw us into community. And, and what the Bible is simply saying is that Eve is the person who corresponds to Adam's deficiency. And, and, and that's all that's being said. This is the partner Adam needs to fulfill his God-given mandate. Now, my wife and I have a saying. It takes two people to live one good life. Boy, that has been our experience. And that is also the theology of the Bible. The emphasis in Genesis 1 is on equality and exalted dignity. The emphasis in chapter 2 is on differentness and correspondence. Equal, but different. And within that equal but different framework, we've encountered role differentiation. Adam is given the responsibility to steward God's word. We've encountered headship. Right? Adam is the federal head. He was created first. Now, to our ears in, in this culture, that doesn't sound very interesting. And we wonder, is that really significant? The New Testament authors treat it as wildly significant, as you're going to see in just a minute. Adam is the federal head. And even as he rejoices over his partner, he continues to exercise headship. He names her. Naming is an act of authority in the Bible. Adam recognized his essential unity with Eve. He calls her woman. Other but equal, woe man, other and equal. Eve was given the responsibility of helping Adam fulfill his calling. Equal value with different assignments. All done in the likeness and image of God. And we recall, of course, that the three members of the Trinity are equal in value and dignity, and yet they assume different roles. You understand that the Holy Spirit did not die on the cross for your sins. But he is not thereby less than the Son. We're also told that the Holy Spirit delights to exalt the Son, but He is not thereby diminished in dignity. Within the Trinity, we see equality of value, we see the assignment of roles, and we see delight in other exaltation. And what we see in the essential creation design of humanity is very much in that image and according to that likeness. All right, now open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Obviously, we couldn't have a, a conversation about gender and, and, and ministry and Christian life without touching on this passage. I, I would suggest that if you were going to make a list of the most offensive texts in the Bible, this would be at the top of the list. This would be number two and three, probably. Um, I, I enjoy CNN, not because I think it's terribly deep. Actually, I enjoy it largely because it's fantastically insipid, but um, that is part of the... That's part of the entertainment for me. Um, but one of the things that CNN does that I find fantastically entertaining and insipid is that on uh, the nights of presidential debates, they get a room full of people like this and everybody gets a dial. Do you know the dial? And when the candidate says something you find offensive or mean-spirited or nasty, you turn it all the way to the right. And, and when the candidate says something that you find invigorating and hopeful and, and you identify with that, you turn it all the way to the left. And when you just want to mess with the candidates, you just go like that, like that. Or I don't know, that's what I would do. And, um, and I would imagine if you put a bunch of people in a room 
and, and gave them those dials and read the Bible to them, it would be when we got to 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the dials would go hard right. This is, this is I would say beyond a doubt, this is the most countercultural thing that, that we believe. And so obviously we can't leave this conversation without touching on it. Let me provide a little bit of background to this text because the background is part of the contemporary argument. So the background is that the Apostle Paul spent about three years ministering in Ephesus. It's apparently one of the high watermarks in Paul's life. Uh, he, he had great openness for the gospel. They were able to establish a church. Ephesus was in its day as Toronto is in our day. It was a regional hub. It was a major city, center of commerce, uh, center of culture. And, uh, and from that hub, they were able to plant a whole bunch of churches. You probably know that the letter that Paul wrote that we refer to in our Bible as the letter to the Ephesians, most scholars actually understand as the letter from Ephesus to all the hub or all the branch churches. So it was written uh, from the, the, the hub church out to the branch churches. And, and we know that because most of the early manuscripts had a blank space where you're supposed to put the church's name in it. So it was a circular letter that, you know, as you took it to these different little branch churches, you'd fill in the name. And, uh, which is neither here nor there. But the point is, we know from history, there were a whole bunch of little branch churches that were served by this hub ministry. And after the Apostle Paul left, he had to leave in a bit of a hurry, and he didn't have things quite as established as he had thought. Uh, he gets a letter from the young man that he's left in charge of the hub ministry in Ephesus, a young man named Timothy. And Timothy obviously tells Paul about some heresies that are creeping into the church and some false practices. Now, that's actually a good thing. Uh, if it wasn't for heresy in, in the first century, we wouldn't have half of our New Testament. Because actually, doctrines that are assumed are not written about. Most of the letters of Paul are written to correct heresy and false practice. So it's a good thing. So some heresy and some false practice was creeping into Ephesus, and Paul writes back as to how to correct these things and set the church back in proper order. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what the heresy and false practice was. We just don't know. There's not, not word one in First Timothy on the specifics of the heresy or false practice. Now, why is that? Well, because obviously Timothy wrote Paul and explained what the heresy and false practice was. Paul wrote back to Timothy knowing that Timothy knew. He didn't write First Timothy originally for our enjoyment, right? And, and so it's solution heavy rather than problem rehashing. So we don't know what the heresy or the false practice was. And that's wildly significant in the contemporary argument. And the reason for that is because contemporary liberal scholars will try to play a kind of bait-and-switch cup game with us. And, and what they'll say is, this situation was so specific that this teaching that we receive in 1 Timothy 2 must be understood as entirely localized. So what they say is, you see, here's what was going on. They say there, there were reformed temple prostitutes who were infiltrating the church. And that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Reformed temple prostitutes. It sounds like a rock band from the 80s, doesn't it? Reformed temple prostitutes. They opened for Stone Temple Pilots down at CNN, right? And it sounds, whoa, reformed temple prostitutes. And, 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 and they were bringing in a philosophy of proto-Gnosticism. And again, anytime you put the word proto before anything, it sounds cooler. Right? If, they, if you just said they bring in a Gnosticism, you're like, whatever. But proto-Gnosticism, now we're talking. So we got proto-Gnosticism, stone temple pilots, reformed temple prostitutes. It's all going on. And, 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 and so this is crazy. 
And, and we're told that Paul's teaching now is so localized to this context and that it can't be exported to any context in which you don't have stone temple pilots, reformed temple prostitutes, and, and proto-Gnosticism. And that exists nowhere in space and time. And so we're told this teaching really is a relic of, you know, a first century cultural oddity. Wow, that sounds so cool. Right? Here's the problem with that. There is absolutely no historical evidence whatsoever that any of that was actually going on. There's no mention of it in the book. There's no mention of it anywhere until like last Thursday when some liberal scholar came up with this theme. It, it, it is a complete fabrication of imagination, right? And, 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 and even if it was true, even if it was true, even if there was evidence of that in the text, here's the question, would that matter? What are you actually suggesting with this? Are you suggesting that once we understand the cultural context for a teaching, if that exact cultural context doesn't exist in our day and time, we can ignore the universal principle embedded therein? Because if that's what you think, like 30% of your Bible is garbage to you now. Because it is the general pattern of the Bible to take a universal principle and to embed it in a culturally accessible application for ease of instruction. And that actually sounds pretty complicated and impressive. It's not. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Look in your Bibles at Deuteronomy 25.4. I'll give you a little easy example. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now you read that and you say, This is okay because I actually am not a cow owner. Right? And so this is that part of the Bible that is specific to cow owners. And because I don't own a cow... Uh, this part of the Bible is not interesting to me. Really? Right? Does any, would anybody say that? No. And, and, and we understand that this is actually a perfect example of a universal principle embedded inside uh, an accessible application. The principle is that whatsoever a person labors at, they should derive their income from. It's a basic principle of economic motivation. Even cows work a little harder if they know they get to share in the profit. Right? And and, and now that principle is with us in an accessible and memorable form. But that's not the end of the matter. You can't close this issue and say, well, as a non-cow owner, I'm not interested. The Apostle Paul freshly applies this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Paul actually goes further. He says, this was never written for cows. Cows have never been major Bible readers. This was never written about cows, he says. Is it not for us? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Paul is saying God wrote this to enshrine a principle in the church that those who labor in the work of the church should receive their income from it. If you labor, if you're spending 40 or 50 or 60 hours laboring in the gospel, you should derive your income from the gospel. There's not enough hours left in the week for you to do something else. And, and, and not only that, you'll work harder if your own income is tied to it. That's not evil. 
That's a basic principle of human nature applied to the field of economics, right? That's the point. Now, what was that sermon about, right? I got all agitated there. The point is simply this. It is a complete sleight of hand for, for people to say, once we understand a cultural context, we are no longer beholden to the universal principle contained therein. That is hermeneutical nonsense. If you tried to pull that in seminary, you would get zero, right? And, and yet we hear this all the time. And I share that just to inoculate you against the nonsense that's out there in so many quasi-evangelical churches today. Were there unique cultural circumstances in Ephesus? I would imagine so. There are unique cultural circumstances everywhere. Do we know what those were? No. If we knew what those were, would that mitigate the force of the text? No. Why then are we talking about it? Is the question we should ask. Let's read the text. Whew, I got all agitated there. Apologize for that. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve." And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I don't want you to get snagged in verse 15. I wasn't planning on teaching on this, but I realized as I read it that for some people that verse is going to sound so strange they're not going to hear anything else I'm going to say. So let me just say a quick word. Can we have verse 15 on there? There it is. Okay, sorry, I was having a hard time identifying it. Okay, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Here's part of the problem. Uh, the Greek word under saved would be sozo. It's the future passive indicative third person singular of uh, sozo. Now, the, the word sozo in Greek has a much wider semantic range than the word saved does in English. Meaning, when you hear the word saved, you just think of salvation, don't you? And, and so when you hear this verse, you, you think what Paul is saying is, if a woman has a baby, she's going to heaven. But we would intuitively understand that cannot be the meaning of the text. So we're just left confused. And I don't want you to be confused for the next 20 minutes or 15 or however many minutes you give me and, uh, and, and not track with me. In, in Greek, the word sozo has a wide semantic range. It, 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 it actually far more often is used to mean healing or restoration. It only gradually began to take on the connotation of salvation. So it has the sense here, what Paul is saying is that as a woman submits to the sovereignty of God, which is where the gospel begins, amen? So as a woman submits to the sovereignty of God and believes that God's design is for her good, that submission will become both the manifestation of her faith and the grounds, the locus of her sanctification. Let me unpack both those two things. Number one, when I say it's the manifestation of her faith, you understand that in the Bible, frequently, deeds are upheld not as saving in themselves, but as proof that you're saved, right? So do you remember, for example, when Abraham, uh, in, John, in uh, James chapter 2, when it talks about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, it doesn't say that that made Abraham the father of faith. It just said it proved that he was. 
Likewise, with Rahab, and the, uh, Rahab the prostitute who gave shelter to the spies, it says that in giving shelter to the spies, she gave evidence of the fact that she had placed her faith in the God of the Hebrews. Similarly, Paul is saying, in our, and boy, is this ever true in our culture, when a woman submits to the sovereignty of God, you, if you're a woman, you understand, you were created with the machinery of baby making. But our culture encourages you to deny that, reject that, and sometimes take violent action against that. Paul says, do you know where faith will work out for you? Do you know where it will be manifested and then worked out? In the realm of submitting to God's design that, that you are to be the channel through which life enters the world. When you can embrace that as for your good and for God's glory... That'll be a, a manifestation of your faith and trust in the sovereignty and goodness of God. And it'll quite likely, likely be the place where you work out your sanctification. And lots of moms know what I'm talking about there. I got five kids. I'm getting sanctified too. It's not just my wife, let me tell you. Um, but, it, but it is, it is and that's what, that's what Paul's saying there. So delete that. That wasn't the sermon. That was just uh, clearing the field so that we could, that we could talk. I want to just pull out a few things here. First thing I want you to see, just with respect to Paul's teaching on gender and ministry, in verses 8 to 9, Paul talks about the need for women to dress with modesty, particularly when participating in public worship. Okay, now the text assumes that women will pray in public. And it stresses that when they do so, they should do it modestly attired. Men should do it without wrangling. How many of you know that men, men can be argumentative? You know, you give a man an inch of interpretive latitude with a verse, and he will split your church. Men should do it without wrangling. Women should do it without exhibitionism. Number two, he goes on to say that women should learn. Now, again, this is one of those things that should sound more revolutionary than it does. And we should, we should note that. Paul says that women should learn in the church. That's a little bit revolutionary. Do you know that there's not a single verse in the Koran addressed to a woman? The Bible does, doesn't just talk about women. It talks to women. It's got women prophets in it. Women evangelists, it's got books named after women, right? And here Paul says that women should learn in the church. Judaism didn't stress that. The Greek philosophers of the day did not have women disciples. Jesus did. And the church continues that practice. Don't be so eager for the controversial that you skip over the revolutionary. It goes on to say, however, that they should learn in quietness or silence. The Greek word there is hesukia. It's not an outright prohibition against speaking, as is clear from the passage, which indicates that women are praying in the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, Paul explicitly says that they're going to be praying and prophesying in the public worship services. So what does Paul mean when he says that women should learn in Hesekiah? Well, he goes on in the next line to tell us. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain Hesekiah. Same Greek word. So clearly, by learning in stillness or quiet, Paul means that she is not to teach in the public worship service, Neither is she to exercise authority in the public worship service. The word used for teach there is didasco. It likely includes uh, keruso, which is to preach or proclaim, euangelizo, which means to preach the gospel or gospel the gospel. Uh, as for what it means for a woman to exercise authority in the public worship, 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 34 would suggest that it means she's not to exercise public discernment over the preaching, as indeed the elders are called to do. Okay, so let me bring this down to street level. She is not to be the doctrinal arbiter in the church. 
Neither is she to be the doctrinal deliverer in the church. The word that Paul uses in verse 11, which is translated as in all submission, supatage, it means to be subordinate. All right, so we summarize Paul's teaching here as being that women may pray, prophesy, and learn in the public worship service, assuming modest dress, but she's not to teach or to usurp the authority of the ruling elders over the doctrine and the preaching of the church. She's to rest in subjection to their leadership. That's the gist of what Paul's saying here. Now, let's look at why Paul is saying that or what he grounds that in. Now, I want to confess that I've had a bit of a journey with this text. I realize this is a strange topic to introduce yourself to a church to, right? Like, (laughs) I got like 800 other messages that would have been a better way to say hello. Um, But on the other hand, maybe it's better that I preach this message than Tim, right? Because if you don't want to have me back, you're just on your own for one week. Um, But... I've actually had a bit of a journey with this passage because I realize it, it sounds as odd initially to my ears as it does to yours. When I was in seminary, I was very open-minded. I think I was probably so open-minded my brain fell out at times. And, uh, and I remember when we studied passages like this and in our in first year in, in New Testament classes, I remember going up to my professor who's a well-known New Testament scholar. He's written commentaries. If I said his name, some of you in this room who are doing some study, you'd know his name. He's a godly man. He used to write me Christmas cards, which is neither here nor there. But uh, he, good man. And I remember going up and asking him and saying, Sir, okay, because I'm reading these texts and uh, I can't. How, explain to me how it is that our denomination has women pastors. And he said, well, Paul, here's what you need to understand. There is a very unique cultural context. Right? And they began to give me the story about the Stone Temple Pilots and the Reformed Temple Prostitutes and proto-Gnosticism. And so there's this very unique context. And so what was going on is that these Reformed Temple Prostitutes, they were coming into the church, they were taking over the public worship service, and that was serving to identify Christianity with pagan prostitution, which was creating a scandal. And so really what this text is about is the, the need for the church to guard itself against public scandal. And today, given that it's a public scandal that we don't have women preachers, actually the correct application of this text is that we must have women preachers. You know what that is? That's hermeneutical gymnastics, right? Like how do you take a text and tell you that what it means is the opposite of what it says? And they said, and furthermore, it wants you, he said, I know you've taken some, some Greek in your undergraduate degree, but you haven't yet learned the science of biblical exegesis. And again, that sounds so fancy. Science. It sounds like they're going to put things in a test tube and we shake it up and the pastor's going to come out meaning things that didn't mean before. Right? And now there's a science of biblical exegesis. And when you have the science of exegesis down, you'll see that actually there's some clues in the Greek that tell us it doesn't mean what it means at face value. Well, I took that to heart. And I operated the first seven years of my ministry on that, on that basis. I had no reason to believe that wasn't true. I was operating on the assumption that if you've written a book, you must know more than the guy who reads the book. Actually, now that I've read bo- or written books, I know how wildly untrue that is. I'm no smarter now than I was two years ago before I'd written books, right? But that's how I operated at the time. I just assumed that was true. I actually had that written into my will. When my, which is, whew, I realize that tells you more about me than you want to know. That's what happens when Bible geeks have babies, right? Which is in itself maybe a topic for concern. But, um, when my wife and I got married and, and, and we had our first child, 
somebody told me that you should write a will in case you're driving a car and you die and somebody's got to raise your kids, right? So I, I had it written in my will that I wanted my daughter raised in an egalitarian church where the full range of ministry opportunities were open to her. Because, you know, if something is true, then you want to live it out, right? Then a funny thing happened. I learned that science of exegesis thing. You know, I I learned how to read the Bible in the original languages. And and I read these texts particularly because these were troubling texts to me. I read them close. I translated them word for word. And I couldn't find a single get-out-of-jail-free card in it. And then I noticed Paul's argument. I noticed where he grounded his teaching. And I noticed what he was absolutely silent on. Look carefully at verses 13 to 14. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see that? He doesn't make a cultural argument. He makes a creation argument. He argues his point from Genesis 1 to 3. Paul doesn't say a word here about culture. He doesn't tell me whether these women were reformed temple prostitutes. He doesn't tell me whether they were uneducated. He doesn't tell me whether he would have cared had they been reformed temple prostitutes who were poorly educated. He doesn't say a word about any cultural issues whatsoever. He grounds his teaching in universal design. Tells me about Adam's headship. He says that it was when the man ceded the stewardship of the word of God to his wife that he got in trouble in the first place. And he says that in the renewed and restored house of God, men under the gospel will not be permitted to do that again. They will take up the word. They will study the word. They will be transformed by the word. They will teach it to their kids and they will enforce it as the rule of law in their homes and in the household of faith. It seems that this is the consistent teaching of the Bible, Old Testament and New. That men and women are equal in value and status, yet different in role and responsibility. And these differences are going to show up in the way that we dress, the way that we worship, and the way that we parent. Men are going to be men in the home and in the church. They're going to steward the word of God. They're going to teach it and enforce it. Women are going to need to help because we can't do it Without you, women need to help without usurping. And boy, is that a lot harder than it sounds. They need to submit to the man's stewardship and ministry of the word. They need to trust that all of this is ultimately for their good and for God's glory. That's what the Bible seems to be saying. But that is a message that our culture does not want to hear. I don't know if you've picked up on that. So what should we do? Right? What should we do? Many churches in the last three or four decades have capitulated to culture outright. And they argue now right along with culture that gender is irrelevant. Gender is a choice. It relates only to sexual orientation and external plumbing. And that can be fixed in a weekend. And therefore, gender should not be an issue or a line of demarcation in the church. Now, others have simply gone quiet. I'd say the majority of evangelicals in the last 30 years have just gone quiet. They don't deny that this teaching is in the Bible, but neither do they want to make it an issue, a barrier that might keep people from coming into the church where they'll hear about Jesus. So what should we do? 
Is this a gospel issue? Does this one really matter? Right? I mean, is this a necessary tension or can we just let this one go so that we can get along? Well, let me end by making an appeal to this as a gospel issue because I believe that this is a gospel issue because the gospel begins with the sovereignty of God over all his creation. The gospel begins with a God who is large and in charge and is good. And sin, all sin, is when we stop believing that God's word is good and that God himself can be trusted. And what is conversion anyway? What is repentance except a return to the place where we bow before the goodness of our God and we declare, you are God and I am not. Your ways are right and lead to life. Or as Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. This is a gospel issue. More today than at any point in human history. The sovereign God of the universe, God made us male and female. God made us a unity with inner diversity. God made us in his image and according to his likeness. And the Bible says, and all very good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, We are at times afraid. Lord God, the the distance between cultural consensus and biblical doctrine has grown so much, so fast over the last 30 years. And Lord, we are afraid. We are afraid that if we speak the truth, we will not be heard. And Lord, we would confess also that sometimes we're afraid that if we live out your design, we will miss out on some good. Oh God, we want to repent of that fear and of that belief. You are hiding no secret good from us. You are good. Your ways are right. And Father, we will not look to the culture to approve of the things that are in your word. We will trust that they are as true as when they sounded familiar to our neighbors. And now when they don't, they remain true. They remain the words of life. They remain words of health. They remain a path to human flourishing. They are yet for our good and for your glory. But Lord, we also confess that we have not in ourselves the means to obey you as we ought. We are still, we are wretched sinners, even saved by grace, Lord. We remain sinners. We are simultaneously sinner and just. That's the miracle of the gospel on this side of eternity. And so, Lord, in our flesh, we lack the ability to love our wives as Christ loved the church. In our flesh, we lack the ability to submit to our husbands with respect and reverence and honor. So God, will you do a gospel work in our hearts? Will you fill us with your spirit as we sing songs and 
spiritual hymns together in this place. Will you cause us to be ever being filled with your spirit that we might live to the praise of your glory before a watching world in the power of your grace and goodness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.